Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 35 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about a treasure map in the Dead Sea Scrolls known as the Mysterious Copper Scroll. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, you may remember that we did an episode a while back of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Uh, on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we cover the mystery of the scrolls as a as a body, as a whole, and we have a we give a lot of the history there. We'll we'll review a little bit here. But yeah. to, by the way, that was episode nine for people who want to go back and listen to that. Right, and we'll I'll put a link in the show notes so that you you can find it right there too. And uh, so around to kind of review a little bit around 1945, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the southern Judean desert near the Dead Sea, uh, hence the name. So most were written on parchment or papyrus, which was normal for the time. But one was different. It was special because it was written on a roll of thin copper sheets. And the scroll was even more special because it contained directions for finding secret caches of treasure. Huge amounts of treasure. Uh, Cue the Indiana Jones music here, folks. (laughs) People don't know what to make of the copper scroll. So that's what we'll be talking about today on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. And before we get into it, Jimmy, this is a special episode in in many ways because it was, the topic was selected by our patrons. Tell us how that happened. Yeah, so this is one of two patron-selected episodes we have this month. Um, Every month we run a poll. We give our patrons uh, from Patreon four choices of topics, and they pick one. This month there was a tie between the Copper Scroll and Skinwalker Ranch. And I was hoping Skinwalker Ranch would win, and you were hoping the <laughs> Copper Scroll would win. So rather than, uh, you know, I, I, wanna, I want us to both have, you know, a say in what we're doing. And so since we, since we both favored different ones of the tie, rather than break the tie, I decided let's just do them both. Okay. So we're going to have two patron uh picked episodes this month. We're doing the Copper Scroll this week for you and all the patrons who supported that. And we'll do Skinwalker Ranch next week for me and all the patrons who supported that Excellent. one. Excellent. That sounds good to me because I get what I want and you get what you want. So, yeah. So uh, the, the the Copper Scroll, I mean, I've, I've been interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls for many years, especially this one. It's so cool. Tell, tell us what the what is the Copper Scroll? Okay, so as the name would suggest, it's um, it's a scroll. It's written on metal. It is primarily copper, although it's like one percent tin, which would technically mean it's a it's a kind of bronze, but it's ninety nine percent copper. So people just call it the copper scroll. It's about eight feet long, and there's a de- little bit of a debate about whether it was originally meant to be a plaque you know, so rolled out like flat, like something you might hang on a wall, or whether it was meant to be rolled up as a scroll. Most uh, people think it was meant to be rolled up and so that it was a scroll in the proper sense. And when was it discovered and by whom? It was found in 
1952, so a few years after the first Dead Sea Scrolls began to appear, and it was found in the back of cave number three. The scrolls were found in this series of caves, and they have numbers uh, like 1 to 11. There's just been a 12th cave that was discovered that had like little scraps in it, but nothing substantial. And so this was cave three, and that is responsible for the name that all the scrolls have like an official number based on the cave they were found in. And so this was the 15th scroll to be taken out of cave three. So it's known as 3Q, Q for Qumran, the site near the Dead Sea where they were found, 3Q15. So the third cave of Qumran, scroll number 15. Unlike many of the Dead Sea Scrolls, this one was actually found by an archaeologist. It was, a, a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found by Bedouins, who would, who would then sell them on the antiquities market. And that means you didn't get to see them in their original in situ situation. Uh, but this one was found by an archaeologist, so we know exactly where it was found. It was in the back of Cave 3 beyond you know other stuff. It was like in kind of an inaccessible location in the back of Cave 3. And then what, what condition was it in when they found it? Well, it was uh, highly oxidized, you know, copper rusts like other metals. It turns green, even though it's normally kind of an orange color. When you see it, it turns green when it rusts. And so it was highly oxidized. It also was broken into two parts. So you had like two ends of the scroll that you could then fit together. And then because it's, you know, this fragile metal broken into two parts, how do they eventually get it open? Well, the Jordanian government, which had control of it at the time, uh, sent it to Manchester University in England, and they had to – they didn't want to just unroll it because they were afraid it would shatter. So they built a special machine, and a guy named H. Wright Baker cut it into strips in 1956. Now, today they wouldn't do this, but back in 56, that was the best solution they had. So they, like, cut it down the middle – so they could make strips out of it and pull the strips apart. And so that's what they did. And it ended up being uh, – today it's in the form of these 23 strips that you can lay lay side by side. And today they probably would have used an MRI or some other imaging machine to, to, to figure out the layers in the scroll. Yeah, they might have used solvents to like try to loosen the rust to, so they could more easily unroll it or something. I'm not sure what they would do today, but archaeologists today are a little startled when they go, wow, we just cut that thing. Because <laughs> yeah. you never know what you're going to lose with where the cut was made, that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. And so when was the, the contents of it published? Well, earlier than a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls, a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls were kind of in a scholarly bottleneck for decades and didn't come out until the 1990s. So like for 50 years. Um, and there were all kinds of rumors about is the Vatican hiding stuff and so forth. And the answer is no, it's just scholars are sometimes too slow about these things. This one, though, got published pretty quickly. So it was found in it was found in 52, it was cut open in 56, and it ended up being published different versions of it in 1960 and 62. So within a decade of when it was found, there were two scholars who were involved in that. One was a guy named John Allegro who transcribed it once it was cut open. Uh, he did the initial transcription of the Hebrew that it's written in. And it, you may have heard the name John Allegro before because he was a scholar who kind of went off the rails. Um, in 1970, 
he published a book called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, which in, in which he argued that Christianity is based on a first century Jewish drug cult that centered around taking magic mushrooms. This definitely this late 60s, early 70s. <laughs> it's kind of a thing of the time. Yeah. And uh, and he kind of ruined his reputation with the sacred mushroom and the cross. So scholars today do not give any credit to to his theories in that regard. It's like this is the this book has been called the stupidest thing ever published by a professional scholar. Wow. Of biblical. Studies. Nice. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he he was the he was uh, he was the first one to transcribe the Copper Scroll. A different guy named Yosef Milik was assigned to uh, to do the actual translation. And in '60, Allegro published his work, and then Milik published his his own work in '62. Interestingly, Milik at first thought that um, that the scroll was represents Judean folklore. Um, but now he thinks it's a document from someone other than the Qumran sect that is responsible or thought to be responsible for most of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that we'll talk more about the different theories about what the scroll is meant to represent as we go along. And then what was what did they find when they translated? What what did what did it say? Well, it's divided into sixty four sections. Um, it's written in Hebrew, which is similar to Mishnaic Hebrew. The Mishnah is a collection of Jewish uh, legal traditions that were put in writing in like the second century and thereabouts. Um, so it's kind of a late version of of Hebrew. F f you know, could be first century. But it's it's similar in some ways to Mishnaic Hebrew. The weird thing is it's also got Greek letters in it. At the end of seven sections, not all of the sections, but seven sections, there are these letters in the Greek alphabet, and nobody knows what they mean. They don't form words. So it's not like here's a Greek word. It's just some Greek letters, presumably some kind of code. Um, it appears that the scroll was hammered by a, a, a scribe who was either illiterate or did not know Hebrew. Because in Hebrew, some letters look very similar to each other. It's like if you extend this line a little bit more, you get a different letter. Um, and like the letters for D and R look very similar to each other. Uh, the letters for Y and W look very similar to each other. You just, very slight differences. And so whoever did the actual hammering, presumably somebody wrote it first, and then someone came along with a hammer and chisel and banged it into the copper. And that guy seems to have either not been literate or not known Hebrew, which actually could be by design if you're trying to hide a treasure map. Right, right. You may <laughs> you may not want the guy to be able to read what he's, what he's hammering. <laughs> right. Um, each of the 64 sections gives a description of a location where some valuable items, usually gold or silver, are located. Uh, some mention pitchers or vessels that are filled with precious metal. Uh, some mention vessels for use in worship. And one location mentions priestly vestments. Can you give us an example of some of the of the kinds of things that it, it actually says? 
Yeah, I'll give you the first and the last of the 64 sections. So in the first section, it describes a location. It says, in the ruin which is in the valley of Ahor, under the steps leading to the east, 40 long cubits, a chest of silver and its vessels with a weight of 17 talents, Kalpha, Kappa Epsilon Nu. So it just switches into... Greek letters there for some reason. Um, so you you get first this description of a location in the a general location in the ruin which is in the valley of a whore. is a proper name. So, yeah. yeah. So you go to you go to the valley of a whore. You find the ruin. You look under the steps leading to the east. You go for a distance of forty long cubits as opposed to shorter cubits, and there you're supposed to find a chest containing silver and its vessels, and it's supposed to weigh 17 talents, and then you've got the code Kappa Epsilon Nu. It sounds like a a, a game of Dungeons and Dragons I once played. <laughs> I yeah, mean, it's, sure. it's, it's, this is fabulous. What, what else, what other location? So, so the last location is particularly interesting. This is location number 64. It says, in the underground cavity, which is in the smooth rock north of Kochlit, whose opening is towards the north with tombs at its mouth, there is a copy of this writing and its explanation and the measurements and the details of each item. So it's like there's a copy of this scroll, but with more information in that you can go get if you can go to the last location and where you'll find it in the underground cavity in the smooth rock north of Kochlit, whose opening is towards the north and has tombs at its mouth. So it's, it's kind of like a hyperlink. Go here for more information. <laughs> right. You may talk about this later. Just tell me that if you want to if you want to bring this up later. But, you know, do we know where these where the Valley of Hachor is or where Kochlit is? Yeah, we well, we know where some of these things are. But uh, others we we don't know, and this is and others we have an idea where it is, but we're not a hundred percent sure, which is kind of typical for the ancient world. We can get an idea frequently of where proper things were, but there'll still be a debate about okay, does this name go with this city or that city, or with this mountain or that mountain? Um, in the case of Ahor, I believe we actually are real confident we know where that one is. I don't know that we know where Kochlit is. And I'm sure you'll, you'll tell us about then why whether someone has actually gone to these places and found them. But, but before we get to that, how much treasure are we talking about? A lot. Um, according to the Copper Scroll, if you went to all these locations, you would get uh, 1,280 talents of gold either 65 or 165 talents in the form of gold bars, around 3,300 talents of silver, uh, 608 pitchers filled with silver, and that may be included in the 3,300 talents of silver, we're not sure, and then around 610 vessels of silver and gold. Now, the, the word talent, I, I recognize that from the gospel and, you know, the, the, the yeah. parable of talents. What, what is a talent? It's a, it's a measure of weight. And we don't know exactly how much it was. Um, it seems that to have, it may have varied over the course of time what counted as a talent. And this was common in the ancient world. A lot of measurements would have different amounts 
depending on who you were talking to. Like you'll notice it mentioned in the first location, go 40 long qubits uh, as opposed to shorter qubits. A qubit classically being defined as the distance between a man's elbow and his and and the end of his uh, hand. Um, so, but some men have longer arms than others. So these are 40 long qubits. Um, in terms of talents, scholars debate exactly what the weight was, but something around 75 pounds in the first century was a talent. And a talent also used as a measure of money, and that normally would be, I guess, silver, although it could have been bronze, but it may, I, that I'd have to check. It was reckoned as being about 20 years wages for a day laborer. So like one talent, that's 20 years of work if you're like a farmhand. So a couple of talents is a lifetime's earning. Yeah, conservatively more than a lifetime, a couple of talents, yes. The treasure described here is way more than that. Um, conservatively, if you add it up, that would be uh, 1,300 talents of gold and 3,300 talents of silver. If you use a 75-pound reckoning for the talent, that turns into basically 100,000 pounds of gold and 250,000 pounds of silver or 50 tons of gold and 125 tons of silver. You then say, well, what would that be in today's money? You've got to ask. It <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it, it depends on the exchange rate. Um, actually, in, it's interesting. In Egypt, silver was more expensive than gold because they didn't have as much of it. But here in Israel, in this time frame, gold was more expensive than silver. If you look today at today's uh, rates for these things, gold is much more expensive than silver. Uh, one troy ounce of gold, and there are 14.6 troy ounces to the pound, but one troy, so not the normal 16 ounces, but 14.6, um, one troy ounce of gold is $1,330. And one troy ounce of silver is a massive $16. So about almost 100 to 1 disparity in the gold to silver cost today. But if you take the numbers, the 50 tons of gold, 125 tons of silver, and and say, what would what could you get for that much raw bullion today? It would be about two billion dollars. Wow, two billion, and, not counting the priceless historical value of it, of course. Right, like set of irreplaceable first-century priestly vestments. <laughs> right, yeah. Wow, <laughs> um, and pr presumably, I I think the two billion dollars would have had even more raw purchasing power back in the first century when there was less money in circulation, and when silver, as you said, was much more valuable than than it is. Now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So then the obvious question is, has anyone ever found this treasure <laughs> or any of it? No, uh, um, but that's not for lack of trying. There have been all kinds of people trying to find these locations. There are all kinds of different attempts to decode where these locations were. People have, with and without permission <laughs> from the Israeli antiquities authorities, uh, been looking at these locations trying to find uh, trying to find the treasure. And thus far, nobody's found any of with, it. Not that they've reported publicly anyway. With that much treasure on the line, people are going to be doing off the books digging, I, I would think. Yes. Yeah. So the the scroll itself, when when was the scroll created? Well, unfortunately, it since it's a cop since it's 
a copper scroll, we can't carbon date it. Right. It's not if it was papyrus, which is made from the papyrus reed plant, or if it was parchment, which is made from animal skins, it would be organic, and we could look at the amount of carbon fourteen in it and and get a get an estimate of its date. We can't do that with metal, and so the technology doesn't exist to do that kind of dating with it right now. Um, what we do know is it was deposited with the other Dead Sea Scrolls, and they seem to have been hidden around A.D. 68, during the middle of the Jewish uh, Great Jewish Rebellion of the first century against Rome. So that would suggest that the Copper Scroll was written sometime before A.D. 68. Frank Moore Cross is a scholar who uh, has dated it to between roughly A.D. 25 and A.D. 75 on paleographic grounds. What what that means is you look at the way the letters are written and how the text is formatted, and you say, well, okay, when was this kind of lettering and when was this kind of formatting used compared to other documents? And you can get an approximate date. Um, like for example, if you see something written in cursive penmanship today, you know, it was almost certainly either written in the past or written by an older person because they no longer teach cursive penmanship in schools. Or if something is written in MLA, like if documents written in MLA style, it was written after that was implemented sometime in the mid, I think fifties or sixties. Right. Yeah. Okay. Modern MLA, modern language association. Right. Okay. So uh, so Frank Moore Cross thinks it was, you know, A.D. 50 plus or minus 25 years based on the way it's written. Um, some theories, though, hold it was significantly early or earlier or even later. So what are the main theories about the Copper Scroll? There's two basic ones, and they center around is the treasure real or not? OK. Um, and, and so they kind of fall out in those two ways. And so what are the what are the theories about the treasure being real? Well, if the treasure is real, it had to come from somewhere. And so the question is where? And there are a number of proposals putting them in chronological order. One is that the treasure came from Amarna. Um, Amarna, as you may recall from our recent podcast on uh, Akhenaten, Egypt's heretic pharaoh, Amarna was his capital in the desert in Egypt. And so one of the claims is this treasure came from Amarna, and it's actually Egyptian treasure, not Jewish treasure. Another proposal is that this treasure came from the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a kind of portable temple that uh, the book of Exodus describes as being built while Israel was still semi-nomadic. So before they were fully settled in the land and before David made Jerusalem his capital and before Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, they had the tabernacle, which is like a port. It was a kind of tent-like structure, served as a portable temple, and it would have been probably the only institution at that time that had this amount of wealth. Um, so the tabernacle is one proposal. Another proposal is that its temple from its treasure from the first temple, Solomon's temple. And we do know that Solomon had lots of treasure. Uh, that's one of the things that the Old Testament talks about. Another theory is that its temple, its treasure from the second temple, 
So this is the one that was rebuilt after the Babylonian exile and that was then expanded and renovated by King Herod the Great in the first century and just before. And uh, so it could have come from there. That was also the temple that was standing during the Jewish revolt and that uh, would have been in operation in A.D. 68. It's also claimed, another theory, is that this treasure belonged to the Qumran sect. They're often thought to be a group called the Essenes. They seem to have lived communally. And so it could be that this treasure represents their donations. Like when you joined the sect, especially if you went to live at Qumran, you might turn over all your belongings, which then might get you know, liquidated and turned into money. And so one proposal is this is the treasure that belonged to the Qumran sect itself. Another theory is that this is treasure that was meant for the temple in Jerusalem, but that was collected after the temple was destroyed. So like the temple, it's after AD 70, the temple's in ruins, but people could still pay their temple tax which then might be reused for the rebuilding of the temple at a future date, continue to give gifts to the temple, even though it's not currently in operation. So it may have been a kind of post-temple sacred building fund or something like that. And then the last theory is that, uh, that the temple belonged to uh, Shimon Bar Kokhba. He, he lived in the early second century. He was a Jewish leader um, during the second rebellion, which was like AD 135, 132 to 135. He was the major military leader at the time. Uh, some of the Jewish authorities proclaimed him the Messiah, who was going to throw off the yoke of the Romans. And some people have said this is his treasure, and it may have been like his war chest for fighting the second rebellion. And so that's those are the, the theories that, that assume that the treasure is real. What are the theories that that don't think the treasure is real. So one theory holds that the treasure is part of Qumran, the Qumran sex folklore, that it's kind of a legend, um, and that it may even be wrapped up in their eschatology because they had a lot of ideas about how prophecy was going to play out and what was going to happen in the future. And they had a kind of apocalyptic worldview. And some people have said, well, this, this may not be real. It may be folklore or a legend or symbol or something like that, that plays into their ideology and their theology of, of what's going to happen. Another option is that it's not their folklore, but it's other Judean Jewish folklore that other people in Judea at the time had legends about this treasure existing, and then somebody eventually wrote it down, um, and it got deposited before the, the temple was destroyed. The third theory is that it's a hoax, that this is some kind of ancient practical joke, and there was never any treasure, and there wasn't any substantial folklore either in the Qumran sect or otherwise about this specific group of treasure items. And then lastly, there's an idea that I want to explore later, but it's my idea. I've never heard anyone else propose it before. And so we'll talk about it after 
we've talked about these other theories. Uh, we always examine these things from the perspectives of faith and reason. Is there is there a faith perspective that we want to explore here? Not so much. Um, the scroll doesn't really have any theological content or just traces of it. You know, like, okay, it mentions priestly vestments and stuff, but there's not a lot. We already knew about priestly vestments, so there's not a lot you can extract from that. It does give us a little better knowledge because it adds more data to our knowledge of this period. It it gives us some extra knowledge of the language of Hebrew, gives us some new data points about that. It also lets us know about the material culture of the time because they had to make this thing. And it gives us some potential insights into topography in Judea if we can figure out where some of these locations are. So uh, so it gives us a little bit, but it's really just scraps. So there's not a major faith perspective here. Okay. So then on the reason perspective, what reason do we have to think that the treasure might be authentic? Well, there's two. One is the Copper Scroll has a very factual style of writing. It does not come across like a document written in symbols. It's just very straightforward. You go here, you're going to find this. You go here, you're going to find this. It reads like a ledger book. It, it, exactly. It's like a ledger. Also, and this is the big reason, why would anybody engrave this thing on copper if it wasn't real treasure? Why would you go to that effort? Um, it is very difficult and expensive. I mean, it's, it was difficult and expensive to get writing done at all back then because you had to have professional scribes do it for you. And the cost of materials, they didn't have big paper mills churning out papyrus. So even just regular writing was was costly. Uh, an individual copy of the Gospel of Matthew, for example, would have cost the ancient equivalent of about $2,000 just for Matthew. But um, to do this, to write on copper, you got to pay for the copper scroll to be made. It's not like you could go down to Home Depot or <laughs> Office Depot and buy a copper scroll. Right. You, you got to have the thing made. You got to have it all hammered out so it's really thin and rollable. And then you got to have a, someone write, write on it. And then you have to have someone come along after him and bang the letters into it. That's a huge amount of expense, both to make the scroll itself and then engrave it. Why would you bother doing something so difficult and expensive if you weren't doing something very important? So obviously this thing was important to whoever made it, and that suggests the treasure could be real. Okay, so then if the treasure is real, which is the most likely theory of its origin? Well, let's walk through them in chronological order. Um, the first one was the Amarna theory, that this is really treasure from... Uh, King Akhenaten's uh, capital down in in the Egyptian desert. That's kooky. <laughs> that no no reputable scholar thinks that. Um, the distance in time and space is just way too big. Uh, you wouldn't transport all of this treasure from Amarna up here to Israel. Um, you. Uh, Akhenaten lived like fourteen hundred years earlier, so more than a thousand years earlier. The treasure would never have survived that amount of time if it was in circulation. And there's just no there's no Egyptian stuff in this scroll. It's in Hebrew with Greek. There are no like cartouches saying Akhenaten or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, the wagon trains, the camel trains that would have been required to transport just even if we're plausible, given the time and space, it would it, every camel in Egypt would have to carry 
this much treasure. I mean, that's all that we're talking and, massive amounts. And, and you wouldn't be doing it in secret. It would, right. people would be, I mean, they couldn't keep their own treasure safe in Egypt. <laughs> They're never going to get them over to Israel like right. this. Okay, so that so that one we're, we're going to go. So what's next? Uh, the tabernacle theory. The problem with the tabernacle theory is the tabernacle was replaced by Solomon's temple a thousand years before this scroll. There are no mentions of the tabernacle in this thing. The it's 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 again there's too much distance in this case in time for the tabernacle theory to be plausible. Why would, when the, when the, um, presumably the tabernacle had accumulated a bunch of treasure and then as soon as Solomon's temple was built, it was all deposited there. So why would you maintain for a thousand years, a separate cache of treasure that for some reason you didn't put in the temple once you had the temple? Right. Okay. And so then that, that then leads to the temple. Maybe it's the, maybe it's this first temple's treasure. And it could be, but the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians um, it, several hundred years before Christ, and they took a lot of its treasure. And, and, you know, the Old Testament talks about this. It mentions some of the things they took back to Babylon. You could say, well, maybe they didn't get it all. Maybe before the final invasion of Jerusalem, the priests hid away this treasure. Okay, maybe they did. The problem is, this scroll seems to have been deposited in the first century, not five or six hundred years earlier. It also has Greek letters, and it and Alexander the Great didn't popularize Greek until a couple hundred years after the temple was destroyed. Also, it's written in Hebrew that sounds much later. It's like Mishnaic Hebrew. It's not like way before that. So if this was a first temple treasures set of treasure caches you'd have to explain why the scroll seems to be such a creature of the first century and why this treasure was left buried all this time and not dug up and redeposited in the second mm, temple there's that uh, th there is one what someone might say is well maybe this is a copy of an earlier scroll uh that's been that's updated, updated or something yeah. but but the yeah, but the, it, the the obvious problem of well, why don't they just put the treasure back? That's that is actually a problem. Uh, so that leads us to the second temple theory, and this is one of the most common ones that scholars think is if if the temple's real, this is one of the most pro plausible ones. On the pro side, that this was second temple treasure, it fits the right time frame. Uh, we it it the second temple was right there in the first century. And that ties into the time period the scroll was written. Also, on the pro side, we know that the first temple had loads of the treasure. The second temple. Uh, I'm sorry, the second temple. The second temple had loads of treasure. It, it's mentioned in the Gospels, you know, in the parable of the – not the parable, but the account of the widow's might, you know, where people are coming by throwing in their donations. Josephus, the Jewish historian from later in the first century who was an eyewitness of this war – um, he talks about, and he was actually a priest at the temple. He was from a priestly family. He talks about all the treasure they had in the temple and so forth. So we know it did have a lot of treasure. It was one of the few things in this time in, in Judea that could have had this much money. So that's in its favor. On the other hand, there are some reasons to be skeptical that, that the tr treasure came from the second temple. One is the second temple did not get along at all with the Qumran sect. The Qumran sect thought that the second temple had been thoroughly corrupted 
And that's, in fact, why they were living off in the desert, because they thought the temple in Jerusalem had become ritually polluted. The Jerusalem priests were all corrupt. They did not get along together. So why would the priests at Jerusalem give their treasure to be hidden by the Qumran sect? Doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, some people have said, well, maybe, though, it wasn't the Qumran sect. Maybe uh, Qumran was captured by the zealots who were in control of Jerusalem during the war, and maybe it was the zealots who brought the treasure from the temple and buried it. It wasn't the Qumraners. So that's a possibility, but there's another con. Josephus, in his History of the Jewish War, says that the treasure was still in the temple when it was destroyed. What he says is that when the Roman general Titus breached the walls of Jerusalem and the soldiers come pouring in, uh, that one of them threw a torch into the temple, even though he says, and this is widely disbelieved by historians, he says Titus had said, don't harm the temple. Historians doubt that very much. They think the temple was deliberately destroyed and Josephus is just being nice about it. Um, but, uh, anyway, Josephus says that a, a soldier threw a torch into the temple and it caught fire and it burned and all of the treasure melted. And that's why they had to pull the temple apart stone by stone. In order to get all of the melted gold and silver out. Right. Yeah. Also, uh, we know that they got some stuff out of the temple because if you go to Rome and you look in, you look at Titus's arch, which commemorates this event. It's a big arch that they built to celebrate the victory over uh, Jerusalem. It has images carved in it of Roman soldiers like carrying off the sacred menorah from the temple, this huge, you know, uh, seven-branched lampstand that they had. And so we know that the Romans got treasure out of the temple, so there had to be some treasure there. Also, the chronology of the Jewish war doesn't really fit well with this because if this was if this scroll was deposited around AD 68 with the other Dead Sea Scrolls, why would they have already moved the treasure out of the temple? Because this was before the final siege, and actually the war was going pretty good for the Jews early on. They initially won some major victories. And then when Nero committed suicide and you had this civil war start with the year of four emperors, the Romans were totally distracted and not able to prosecute the war. They kind of pulled back and encamped waiting for new orders from Rome. And so actually the Jews were having a lot of success at this point. Why would you ditch all this treasure when you thought you were going to win? So that's, so that's, Bad for that theory. What about the Qumran treasure theory? Well, on the pro side, it would explain why um, it would explain why the copper scroll was deposited with the other scrolls that belong to this sect. So that makes sense. It's also possible that they could, because remember, they thought that the current temple was polluted, and they there thought therefore thought it was going to be destroyed, and they might have had this fund collected for rebuilding a new temple. Although it's a little unclear in some of their writings, it seems to suggest that they thought God was going to make the new temple. And it's not clear if they meant by that, that God was just going to like do a miracle and there would be a new temple, or if they would like have to build it on God's behalf. So that's a little unclear. 
But it's possible, and it has been proposed, that this was like their building fund for once that current wicked temple is destroyed, we're going to use all this money to rebuild a new one. On the Khan side, we don't know that they had this much wealth. They they were a significant Jewish sect, but we don't have proof that they had $2 billion or more available to them. It's possible they did based on donations people made as they joined the sect, but it's it's kind of iffy. And then the next theory then is the post-temple treasure theory. Right. Right. So this would have been, this would be a collection of temple taxes and other gifts from after the temple was destroyed. The problem with that, there are two. One is that the while temple taxes did continue to be collected after the war, we know that, they were given to a different temple. As a humiliation to the Jewish nation, the Romans required that thenceforth the taxes that they would have paid to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem will henceforth be paid to the temple of Jupiter best and greatest in Rome, to the chief Roman god. And so this was, needless to say, not a popular thing (laughs) with Jews, but they were compelled to do it. And it's interesting, in fact, some Jews would try to get out of paying this tax even by claiming they weren't Jews. And we have a record from one uh, historian who talks about being present at a court proceeding where they like stripped a guy naked to show that he was in fact circumcised, so he was a Jew and had to pay this tax. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so we know that taxes were collected, but they were diverted to a different temple. Could some have still been like set aside for a rebuilt Jerusalem temple? Sure. But the Copper Scroll was deposited in an inaccessible location in the back of the cave. And that, so other things, other scrolls and, you know, jars containing the scrolls are in front of that location. And those things were set there during the war. So if this is a post-war fund, how did the scroll get behind the stuff that was deposited there during the war? So that's a problem for that theory. Um, the final theory, the Bar Kokhba theory, that it was like his uh, war fund or something, well, if it was, why wouldn't he have spent it on the war rather than bury it? Um, I suppose you could say maybe he was caught off guard and didn't have time to spend it because the war was going so badly. But then why would he have time if he was caught off guard? Why would he have time to conduct this massive burial project where we're going to bury this stuff and we're going to make this copper scroll and its duplicate copy with more information and we're going to hide it in these 64 different locations and we're going to do all that in secret in the middle of wartime. Right, unlikely. In a war that's going badly for us. Yeah. The, the only thing I could think of that might work for the Bar Kokhba theory is it could have been uh, like pre-buried either before the war or when it was going well for Bar Kokhba as kind of like reserves. So like if things start going badly, we can tap these in the future. But then things went badly too quick 
and he didn't get him dug up. Or maybe he did, and that's why they haven't been found. But regardless of that, we still have the problem, how did the scroll get in the back of the cave during the first rebellion if this is the war fund for the second rebellion? Which was years and years, decades later. It, yeah, it was 50 years later. Now, the theories of that where the treasure might not be real, what what, what is reason do we have to think that those uh, theories might be? So the first is that we've never found any of this stuff. I mean, people have been looking and we've never found any of the of the 64 locations with treasure. I mean, people have proposed, well, this should be the spot. But when they've checked that spot, if it is the right spot, there's no treasure there. And um, you could say, well, maybe it was plundered in antiquity, you know, like all those Egyptian tombs that got right. robbed. Um, well, it's quite possible. And maybe, in fact, the Romans themselves plundered it. They could have found location 64 and said, hey, a treasure map. Let's go to these other 63 places. Right. right. So uh, so it's not proof that the treasure was not real because it could have been plundered. But it is a mark against it being real. The fact that we've never found any of this stuff. Also, there the amounts are just huge. I mean. While there were a few institutions like the temple that could have had this much money, this is just a fantastic amount of gold and silver. And some people have said, even who think the treasure is real, maybe this is some kind of hyperbole, even though it doesn't read like hyperbole. Um, so the fact the, the the amounts are so huge. This would be the biggest archaeological find in history. Yeah, we've never. Yeah. Exactly. We've never found anything like this. I mean, not even in, I mean, King Tut's tomb had nothing like this amount of gold and silver in it. And he was Pharaoh of Egypt. So, um, so this would be absolutely astonishing if, in terms of a find and the amounts are so huge. It's another mark that many people have said, this doesn't sound real. Then there's the difficulty with carrying out the burial project for this stuff, because we are talking tons of gold and tons of silver, 50 tons of gold, 125 tons of silver. How do you bury all that stuff in secret without word getting out? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So those are some reasons why people think the treasure might not be real. So then if the treasure isn't real, which of the theories you mentioned is most likely? Well, um, let's start with the Qumran folklore theory that this was just some kind of, you know, legend of treasure legend they had in the Qumran community that may have been tied into their beliefs about prophecy. The problem is we have all of these other scrolls, hundreds of them, and they don't mention such a legend. And when you read the Copper Scroll itself, it doesn't mention any of their theology. So it doesn't seem like it's of a piece with that stuff. Um, it doesn't seem to tie in to their prophecy. It also has a very factual writing style. As you said, it's like a ledger. It just go here, get this, go here, get this. And that's all. Um, also, why would you, if you did have a treasure legend, and there are treasure legends in history, you know, uh, Blackbeard's treasure, things like that. Why would you have a detailed list of 64 places and exactly what was there? to go to. It's one thing to say Blackbeard buried this tr box of treasure on this island. It's another thing to say, here are detailed descriptions to the 64 islands where Blackbeard buried his treasure and the exact amounts you'll find at each place. <laughs> right. Right. 
that's not how treasure <laughs> legends generally work. And then if this was just a legend, why would you take the trouble to put it on copper? I mean, that's hard. They ha they didn't put their other sacred writings on copper. This is the only one. They The Qumran sect had lots of writings, many of which they considered sacred. I mean, they thought this is like a book of the Bible, and they didn't put it on copper. So it, it doesn't fit that. And some of those are also problems with the Judean folklore theory. Um, if, it, you know, if this was a Judean treasure legend, again, why is it so detailed? Why is it so matter of fact? Why is there no framing story about who buried this and why? I mean, in the Blackbeard legend, okay, Blackbeard was a pirate. He was this famous figure. He was exotic. He, we know he did certain things. We tied it into him. None of that, nothing like that. It doesn't say so and so, you know, Blackbeard the priest went and buried the treasure <laughs> to save it from the Romans or anything right. like that. There are no characters, um, there's no story. Exactly. So how is that a legend? This is just a list. And why would you have a list from a legend detached from its original legend? And then if it was a legend, why would you go to the expense and the hassle of putting it on copper? You know, you might tell your legend orally. You might write it on papyrus. Why do something as insanely expensive and difficult as make the copper scroll? Which is then a problem for the hoax theory. You could say, okay, somebody made this up as a big joke. You know, they're hoaxing somebody. Uh, they There is no real treasure, but they made it all up. Okay, then why put it on copper? That's fantastically expensive and difficult. That's like make, like today, it's spending $50,000 or something to to have an elaborate April Fool's Day joke. Exactly. Yeah. It's one thing to have an April Fool's podcast or something, but <laughs> yeah. it's another to spend $50,000 on your April Fool's joke. Right. Okay. You know, where so as we go through all of this, everything has its pros, but everything has its cons, which are very, very obviously very heavy cons. Uh, the, the fact that it's made of copper is a, is a big issue here. But Jimmy, you mentioned earlier that you have an idea that you wanted to propose. What What was that? I've never seen anyone else propose this, and it came together in my mind as I was prepping for this episode, actually. So I haven't had a chance to write about it, although if I am able to before uh, the show is released, we'll have a link in the show notes. But it occurred to me there is a possible explanation that fits a huge number of facts, maybe all of them. Hmm. It's not a hoax. It's a scam. Hmm. Now, think about this. There have been other scams. Now, today we have lots of email scams. You know, people in Nigeria want to send you money and you got to give them your bank info so they can deposit it and stuff. And really, they're going to drain your bank account. Um, there's a famous uh, scam called Sir Francis Drake's estate that was started I, back in the 1800s, as I recall. Um, basically, an American was claiming that Francis, Sir Francis Drake um, the British explorer and official uh, government-endorsed pirate um, had died intestate and his estate had never been distributed. And so if you were one of his descendants, you could potentially get a stake in the eventual distribution of his estate. So we need to petition the British government to get them to release the money. And so you need to donate so we can get them to do that. That was the Francis Drake's estate scam. In fact, his his estate was distributed. His wife inherited it. <laughs> okay. 
Um, but there's another scam that not as many people know about. It's not as famous. It's Sir Francis Drake's map. And the idea is Francis Drake had a map to where his treasure was buried. And I can't use this map myself, but I'd be willing to part with it for a reasonable sum. And then you could go get his map, his treasure from the location on this map. Okay, maybe the Copper Scroll is the first century equivalent of Sir Francis Drake's map. It's somebody made it in order to scam the Qumran community. That explained, that idea would explain so much. It would explain the factual writing style. It would explain the fantastic amounts of money we're talking about because that's motivation for the Qumraners to buy the Copper Scroll. It would explain why the treasure was never found because it didn't exist. It would explain why this map is in the Dead Sea Scrolls because the Qumraners bought it and they had an interest in the temple. Hence, there are mentions of temple vessels and vestments presumably from the pre-corruption phase of the temple that they could use in their fancy future temple. It would also explain why it's written on copper. In confidence tricks, there are what you what are referred to as convincers that are meant to increase the sale price of what you're trying to, to sell in a con. And so the fact it's on copper would be a convincer to get the Qumraners to think this is a really important thing. This must be real. Nobody would go to the trouble to fake this on copper. <laughs> right. And in fact, it's so convincing, it has convinced modern scholars that the treasure is real, even though none of it's ever been found. So if it convinces modern scholars 2,000 years later that this treasure would be real— how much more convincing would the fact it's on copper convince the Qumraners in the first century when they had a palpable feel for how difficult it would be to make a copper scroll? That This would be the greatest scam in history if it could last for 2,000 years. <laughs> well, it certainly would be one of the most long-lasting. Um, it also would explain why there's a reference in location 64 to the second clarifying scroll. Because the other the other locations are kind of ambiguous. It's kind of hard to know exactly where this is. Oh, but we've got a promise. If you go to location 64, you'll get all the information you need, including information on the measurements that are being used and more detail about exactly what you're going to find. So if you can get that last location, you're going you're gonna to have the key to finding the other 63. You're just going to have to buy the scroll first to get that last location. Yeah. So I, I I put on my Sherlock Holmes hat and said, not that I literally have a deer stalker, but <laughs> um, but I and said, okay, let's put myself in the position of the scammer. I'm going to be a first century Jewish criminal. How? Let's imagine how the scam goes down. And I said, what would I do? Well, I would say, okay, if I if there's this sect at Qumran, and they hate the current temple, but they've got some money, and I want to scam them out of it. How can I get their money? Well, I can I can go to them and say, guess what? You know how the Maccabees corrupted the temple 160 years ago? Well, when the Babylonians 
captured the temple, the priests, who then were wise and holy and not corrupt at all, hid the treasure from the first temple in the desert. And knowledge of it has been passed down all this time in my priestly family. And uh, I'm like you guys. I think we. I think the temple has been corrupted. I want to join your sect. There's another convincer. So I'm this as the scammer. I join the sect, and then I say, you know, my priestly family, we're down on our luck, but we do have this, you know, treasure map. My cousin does. I don't have it. My cousin has it, and he'd be willing to give it up, but he'd want some compensation. You know, this is a family treasure you'd be buying, and it's going to give you access to all that uncorrupted first temple treasure. And maybe I've even salted an item or two in a location that you can find as another convincer. Maybe, maybe not. But then there's these deliberately vague directions. And I can say, well, you know, this treasure was hidden hundreds of years ago. Some of the names have changed. <laughs> but fortunately, if you get location 64, you get the other 63. And so then I sell them the map and then I violate one of their ridiculous rules, like don't poop on Sunday on the Sabbath, <laughs> which literally was one of their rules at Qumran. And um, and I get myself expelled. And so they've got the map. I've got the money. I've been expelled. I'm not with them anymore. And and my scam has worked. And that would be something like my plan if I was a first century scammer trying to get them and their money separated. And so the question is then maybe do they ever discover the scam? Well, if they don't, I'm home free. They've got what they want and they're, they're banging their heads on these locations, not finding anything, but they, they can't really come after me. I don't know where the things are. I've given you all the information I had. And maybe even they do discover it, but the scroll is still there at Qumran um, at the time the rest of the scrolls are hidden away during the first rebellion. You know, might as well keep it. It's a very expensive thing. We paid a lot of money for this. <laughs> yeah. Just a reminder. You're not going to throw it yeah. away. The writing material alone is important. The future generations as a reminder, don't be as as, uh, as gullible as we were or something like that. Uh, although, <laughs> of course, that gets lost. Yeah. So that that is fascinating. So, Jimmy, what is... What is your bottom line here with the uh, the Copper Scroll then? Well, if I, I don't know if the treasure is real. If the treasure is real, then it's most likely either the Qumran community's own fund or it's money from the Second Temple. If the treasure is not real, and, I, and, and I'm inclined these days to my scam theory, and I'm trying to not just be inclined to it just because it's mine, but it really does seem to fit lots of the data – if the treasure is not real, I think that I think the copper scroll is a scam, not just a hoax, a scam. Wow, <laughs> that that is interesting. So, uh, if folks want to find out more about the uh, the copper scroll, what what resources can we offer them? Uh, we have a link to Wikipedia's entry on the copper scroll, so you can read about it there. Also, uh, in episode nine, we had and we'll have a link to that. We had uh, a couple of resources I mentioned that are really good audio resources about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they both have discussions of the Copper Scroll in them. One of them is the Great Courses series on the Copper Scroll by the Old Testament scholar Gary Rensberg. It's an excellent series. He mentions the don't poop on the Sabbath rule. <laughs> um, 
Also, we have uh, an audio series of lectures from The Modern Scholar, which is by uh, Rabbi Lawrence Schiffman. And it's also really good. I recommend both of those courses on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then we'll have a link to Wikipedia's entry on confidence tricks. Uh, by the way, folks, I wanted to, to mention the the image that we use on the sh uh, show art for today's uh, episode yeah. was provided by uh, our friend Tom McDonald, a great uh, Catholic blogger, uh, journalist. Um, and he runs a, a website called the weirdcatholic.com. And, and for, for folks who like to listen to this program, that is definitely something you ought to check out. It is it is very much up your alley. So uh, thank you, Tom, and and everyone go check out weirdcatholic.com. Yeah, thank you, Tom, and it definitely lives up to its name. It is weird and Catholic. <laughs> yes, because we Catholics we're we are often weird. So Jimmy, that's the the story of the Copper Scroll. Let's uh, talk about some feedback. What mysterious feedback do we have this week? Well, we this week we're talking uh, we're taking feedback from our near death experiences episode and we had a number of people write in who have had what they think are near death experiences or someone they know has had. Okay, them. so uh, let me let me read some of that to you and then you can respond. We had uh, a message uh, anonymous from YouTube uh, right. Yeah, actually, she she wasn't anonymous, but her um her name was written in Arabic, and I, I, it's been too long since I've I've done the Arabic alphabet. <laughs> okay, so uh, whoever you are, we, we'll 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 call you anonymous for now, but unfortunately, but uh, she writes, uh, "I'm a 19 year old girl from Iraq, and I've had a similar experience. I was going to a doctor to take a shot because I was sick, and after taking the injection, I felt a pain in my head and suddenly fainted." Everything became dark, and there was a terrifying sound, like a loud moan or a high wind. I saw a group of houses, like I was flying in the air above them fast, and I found myself in a large gray and black space where there was no sky or land. Then a tall person wearing a black robe appeared to me. He was without a face. It was, for me, very normal and ordinary. Then I felt the breeze of summer wind and saw a place like a door open with beautiful light and air and a few trees. It seemed to be a garden, and I loved it so much and was flooded with love, feeling like I was sinking in love, tranquility, peace, and mercy. I wanted to cross into this place and enter it, but suddenly I was turned away from the place and returned to my body. I returned to consciousness and realized that I had died and come back to life and did not enter the beautiful place. I felt very sad and cried. And uh, her experience is is very similar to others. Uh, some of the details vary a little bit. One of the things she mentions is the figure in the black robe. And some of our listeners might think that's sinister. But I should point out that colors have different significations in different cultures. For example, um, you know, white here in the West is like a positive color. But if you wear white in some Asian cultures, it means death. And in the same way, in the same way, black can be a symbol of of evil in the West, but it's not necessarily everywhere. And um, and even priests wear black robes as a sign of holiness and their consecration to God. And so I wouldn't uh, necessarily interpret the black robed figure uh, as a sinister figure in. And I've edited what she had to say down because she had more to say. Um, but she mentions feeling love in connection with the figure, and that's something that is very common in near-death experiences, is encountering a figure that is somewhat mysterious, but also is a figure of profound love. So uh, on the same topic, uh, Bennett from the UK writes on Facebook. He says, uh, my mom, deceased almost a decade now, told just her immediate family 
that when I was younger, she was in hospital for emergency surgery. She clearly remembered being in agony, and then a calm warmness came over her and a great feeling of peace and happiness. Next, the agony returned, and there was some commotion. Later, she found out that, as she put it, she had died for a very short while. It left her not fearing death itself. She was not a flighty person. Born, she was born to severe Victorian parents in 1920, and she lived and worked as a young woman during the London Blitz, writing the condolence letters to the soldiers' families. So she wasn't one to make stuff up. And I, for one, believe that this is as genuine an experience as anyone can trust their senses in extreme conditions. I think she only shared it with me as a hope to be a comfort. And again, uh, the experience of Bennett's mother is very consistent with other near-death experiences. Some people remember more or less about the experience. Uh, it's She doesn't, from what Bennett says, she didn't report like meeting relatives or the the being of love or anything like that or the tunnel but she the features she does report of her experience are very consistent with what other people have reported including the coming away from it not fearing death anymore also on facebook christopher writes in high school in the late 70s i was in bed and felt like i was floating out the window i did not notice my body in bed until i suddenly felt a rush as i realized i was being pulled back into my body i wonder if this was a lightweight near-death experience, and that either my heart had st briefly stopped beating, I was much later diagnosed with a minor heart murmur, or I stopped breathing, like with sleep apnea. It was a very brief experience, but I remember it to this day. In this case, we have some features that are like near-death experience features. What we don't have in this case is a, a clinical situation where there were medical professionals there to verify that someone, you know, died or came close to dying. Typically, a minor heart murmur wouldn't, you know, kill you. And if it did, your heart wouldn't necessarily restart. But it's possible that this could be something like a near-death experience. Either um, it, it could be a near-death experience. There may have been a momentary interruption of life processes that then reasserted themselves. It also could be uh, something that is some people have related to near-death experiences, which are out-of-body experiences where you don't die, but something similar happens. And uh, that's a subject that we'll be doing a future episode on. I, I'm not saying at this point that, that out-of-body experiences are real, I, I, but they are sometimes reported, and this also fits the profile that's reported for those. I, I, I may have something to contribute to that episode, a personal experience. Awesome. So that should be interesting. Awesome. So uh, then our last bit of feedback is from Radimir Nowatowski. Uh, Nowatarski, sorry, from YouTube, who writes, is there some logical, logical explanation for how the soul can remember and think without the brain or even see and hear without eyes and ears? Well, this is a subject that uh, theologians have actually devoted significant attention to, uh, particularly in the Middle Ages. The common view is that because we don't because we're configured, our souls are configured to work with our bodies. Once our bodies stop working, the soul will not have new experiences unless God provides them. And so the the common understanding is that the knowledge that departed souls have of what's going on is given to them by God. It's directly infused knowledge. And then that information would somehow be retained and re-encoded into the brain once the uh, once the person's life processes are restarted and their brain starts working again. This is all, though, a very mysterious area. It could be that 
the common speculation about this isn't the whole picture. And maybe in addition to infused knowledge, the soul has some kind of senses that are able to operate in the in, in once uh, once it's independent of the body. That's also a matter of speculation, but uh, there's no proof in this area. I would, as usual, just exhort people to keep an open mind to different possibilities and and not be definitive one way or another. Uh, good. That's all of our feedback for this week. Uh, we now want to have some uh, mysterious headlines, Jimmy. What do we have? So since we're talking about scams in this episode, let's talk about modern scams. You know, those psychics who tell you they're going to talk to your dead relatives on TV and stuff like that. Well, there is a sting operation, uh, uh, actually a series of sting operations that some skeptics have done where on these psychics, uh, where what they do is they create fake Facebook and social media profiles for themselves and salt them with imaginary life histories. And then they get celebrity psychics to give them readings, knowing they've researched these fake identities. And um, and they use that to expose the techniques that uh, that fake psychics are using to do um, these readings on people. So there's a link to that. It's from the New York Times. Also, from the world of science, have a story about the first semi-identical twins who have been identified in pregnancy. Now, you may be wondering, what's a semi-identical twin? Well, okay, uh, fraternal twins, the non-identical twins, happen when a mother releases two ova at once, and then they both get fertilized. So they're effectively brother and sister. They're just born at the same time. Identical twins happen when a mother releases one ovum and it gets fertilized, but then it splits in in two. So you get two children who are genetically identical. So if they're brother and sister, if they're fraternal twins, they have 50% of their DNA in common. If they're identical twins, they have 100% of their DNA in common. Semi-identical twins are a recently identified phenomenon. We've only known about this since the advent of genetic testing. And they have 75% of their DNA in common. Here's how that works. Sometimes a mother releases a single ovum and it gets fertilized by two sperm. And as a result of that, it has a triple genetic code. So it's got the genetic code of the ovum plus the genetic codes from both of the sperm. Normally, that is fatal. We are not designed to have that many chromosomes. So normally, any, any, any fertilized ovum will die if, if that happens. But sometimes a process like what produces identical twins happens. And instead of before it dies, the uh, the double fertilized ovum splits in two and it takes part of the DNA from one sperm and part of the DNA from the other sperm. And as a result, it has the right amount of DNA to allow life to continue. And so you get a, you get uh, two twins that have 75% of DNA together. And we found a few cases of this um, where after birth, after the twins have been born, we've discovered they're semi-identical. Now they found some twins who are still in utero 
that are semi-identical. And they're the first ones to be to be found. So we've got a link to that as well. You mentioned that fraternal twins are brother and sister. Are they always brother and sister? Can you have the same sex? Oh no, you you can have you can have two brothers or two okay. sisters. I thank you for clarifying that. But they're effectively like ordinary siblings in terms of their genetics. They have fifty percent of their DNA in common, like you do with your brothers and sisters. And do semi-identical twins look alike? Look the same, or they look like brother and sister but different? I don't have information on that. I assume. That they look close. I assume they're somewhere in the middle yeah. because they're 75 percent of their day. I mean, ordinary brothers and sisters look similar. And and so I would suppose that they will look even more similar, but not quite identical. Well, thank you for that, Jimmy. Uh, before we before we close out, I, I do, as, as usual, I want to take a, a moment to thank the, all those patrons who who voted, for instance, on uh, this topic to choose this, this topic for this month. Um, and they make this show possible through their financial donations. Uh, today, I wanted to thank by name, uh, Brooke K, Joel L, Pamela F, Daniel S, and Denise I, through their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give. They make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all of the great shows we've been doing at SQPN, which we're, we're adding even more shows all the time. So, you know, please go to sqpn.com and Check out the all the shows that we've got there now. Um, and if you want to help support our work and support our mission and support our continuing on with this this podcast and others, you can go to sqpn.com slash give and uh, make a donation of any amount. Uh, so that's it from us. What did you think about this? Uh, you know, Jimmy's theories about the Dead Sea Scroll known as the Copper Scroll and uh, whether his uh, his own personal theory, the scam theory, which sounds really good. It's kind of disappointing. I want there to be gold buried in the desert, but uh, that's my own uh, uh, take. But but you know what? Did, we all, <laughs> of course. So, but what do you what do you all think? You know uh, about the about these theories? So let us know by going to sqpn.com slash mysterious or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page. You can leave a comment there. You can send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. You can send a tweet to uh, at mys underscore world or a tweet just with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Any of those ways will we'll get us some feedback. Uh, you can also comment on YouTube like some of our uh, feedback from today. Uh, please, if you have not done so yet, please subscribe to the show to make sure that you get every episode. You don't want to miss a single episode. Uh, this, mo- this month we have five episodes coming at you. You don't want to miss a single one of them. Uh, and you can do that in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or on YouTube, where if you do that, make sure you hit the bell to get notifications when a new episode goes up. And uh, as always, you can find links to Jimmy's resources from this discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>